I want to come this morning and add courage to you. I want to add and share a word of hope. I'm aware of so many of your stories, so many of your circumstances, and as I go through the list that I have in my prayer journal and pray over each and every life that's represented by calling this their church home, I'm aware that many of you have been and are facing so many things in your life. The truth is always constant and it's always accurate. However, it's often much easier to believe a lie. It's often much easier to tell a lie than it is to come face to face with truth. And sometimes everything that is presented as fact and certainty turns out to be just smoke and mirrors. John, in his gospel, goes the extra mile to give reasonable and credible eyewitness account into the resurrection of Jesus. John always writes so that he can move you out of doubt, move you beyond question, and come to a place where you say, I believe that Jesus is who he says he is and does all that he's promised. That's why John writes. The story, as you know, began on Good Friday. There are at least two women standing watching the crucifixion on Friday. The first one is called Mary, and she comes from the town of Magdala, and she is a devotee of Jesus. She, she had been, she had come to the, the master at some point in her life during a terrible personal crisis, and she had looked him in the eye and asked for his help, and he had obliged, and he had set her free from things that had tormented her, demons that had tormented her, and her life at that very moment was transformed instantly. And from that moment, she becomes a follower, a devotee of Jesus. The second Mary is from the town of Bethany, and, and she is the sister to Martha and to Lazarus, and, and she's a dear friend of Jesus. She's a dear friend of all the disciples. And, and they had both stood with others, and they had watched the, the suffering, the torment, the eventual death of Jesus on the cross they watched it from a bit of a difference, a distance. And, and they had also gone and they had followed Joseph and, and Nicodemus to the burial place. It was a very wealthy man named Joseph who came from a town named Arimathea, who was also a devoted follower of Jesus, who could not in good conscience think of Jesus just being tossed into a mass grave or suffering some other kind of end-of-life indignity. And so Joseph went to Pilate and, and courageously requested that he be given the body of Jesus, that that body be released to him, and he would take Jesus' body to his own tomb, a tomb carved out of the rock and reserved for his end of life. And he would give that tomb to Jesus. Pilate looked for an updated report. Is Jesus still alive? And he got a report that, in fact, he 
was indeed dead. And so Pilate officially releases the body of Jesus. And and Joseph and Nicodemus took and and wrapped the body in a clean linen cloth and, and placed it in the tomb. There was a requirement in Jewish law that, that you didn't have anything to do with death as the, the, the uh, Sabbath would come. And so because of those requirements, they weren't able to do the full preparation of the body. A body would be taken and cleaned and wrapped in linen strips and each layer of linen would be covered in a myrrh and aloe mixture and that would act as a, a preservative, as a, as a mummification of the body so that it would slow down the decomposition. It took a, a lot of linen and it took about 75 pounds of spiced compound to get the body ready for final burial. The, the, the body of Jesus had to be buried and left before the sunset on the day of death, the, the Sabbath, the, the Passover Sabbath. So in just the few minutes that they had from the time they got re- permission to take the body down off the cross and take it to the, the burial site and prepare it, they, they just didn't have the time to finish the task. And so they left it undone and they moved the stone in front of the tomb. And they left. They went home. And while all that was going on, the two Marys had been sitting across from the tomb, watching, waiting, witnessing all that was taking place. That was Friday. A long, very difficult emotional day. And Saturday, the leading priests and the Pharisees approached Pontius Pilate and and, and they requested a special meeting. They requested that a Roman troop, a troop of Roman guard would be dispatched immediately to watch over the tomb. They stood before Pilate and said, that deceiver, whose name was Jesus, he, he once said while he was alive that he would come back to life on the third day. If we leave the tomb unguarded, his disciples could come at night, break into the tomb, steal the body, and and they would never be able to crush the rumor that Jesus had fulfilled his promise and had come back to life. We want to make sure that no one tampers with what has been accomplished by putting this traitor to death. Pilate agrees, and he sends out four Roman soldiers to, play, to the place where Jesus is buried to watch over the tomb. They're dispatched early on Saturday morning. It was Saturday, it was the Sabbath day, the holy day of rest, and, and so Jewish people were, were quiet. They remained pretty inactive during that day. It was a bit of a different story for the followers of Jesus. They, they were locked away. They were hidden away. They, they were lost in their sorrow, lost in their fear. They, they worry and they wonder about what would happen next. They were not at this point remembering that Jesus had on at least three occasions stated, yes, he would die, but on the third day he would rise again. That had slipped their mind. That had been forgotten. Sabbath goes from sunset Friday to sunset Saturday. And so early Sunday morning, before the sun was up, 
The two Marys and Salome, another devoted female follower of Jesus, decide to, to complete the work that had not been completed on Friday. And they would go to the tomb and they would finish wrapping and preparing the body for its final burial. John chapter 20 verse 1 says that while it was still dark, Mary from Magdala came to the tomb. Verse 2 says that, that there was a we involved. And we learn from other gospel writers that it was Mary from Bethany and Mary from Magdala and Salome. The worry had been as they set out for the tomb, how will we get into the tomb? There's a, there's a stone. We watched them roll the stone in and it's too big, it's too heavy for us to move. And how will we get in? Matthew records that as they're on their way to the tomb, there's an earthquake. That the earth shakes violently. Major earthquakes in Israel are quite unusual, but the country is located on a seismically active area, and, and, and there are small earthquakes each and every year. And, and the scripture makes clear that this wasn't a regular seismic activity, but that there was the power of God released in such a strong and deliberate way that it didn't just shake the ground, it raised the dead. It raised the dead. And, and, and that's where the three women arrived. Matthew records that an, an, an angel sent by God came from heaven and moved the stone aside and then sat on the stone. And, and, and the women arrive and the first thing they see is that the stone has been rolled away. And, and, and that the entrance is open. But but the thought is, this can't be good. The very first thought they thought is that this has meant that there's been a robbery. Uh, that, that someone has broken in and stolen the body. And, and so Mary of Magdala runs back to the, where the rest of the group are gathered. Verse 2 says that she, she found Simon, and, uh, Simon Peter and she found John. And, and, and they... they Listen to her as she spits out what she's trying to say. And, and it comes out this way. Someone, and we don't know who, at some point, and we don't know when, has taken the body of our Lord, has taken it out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have taken him. The, play, the pace and the pressure of these last several days have been Traumatic. The Friday experience had been absolutely chaotic to watch a, a friend, to watch their leader be put to death in such a way would shake anyone to the core of their being. The, the fear that had simmered and grown over the course of the, of the night, Friday and leading through Saturday, had been overwhelming. In, in the minds of these women, and now Simon, Peter, and John, there's a, a further worry that the grave has been desecrated, that, that one more horrible thing has happened in a long line of horrible things and miserable failures that they've all experienced. It just keeps going on. It, the, the story just keeps getting worse. These people... These participants in that first Easter are not unlike you and me on this Easter weekend. 
When faced with circumstances, when faced with bad news, when confronted by reports that don't fit into the narrative that we've written in our own hearts and minds, we react. We react with fear. We allow worst case scenarios to play over and over and over again in our heads. We react with negative emotions that, that declare that we've come to the most disappointing, damaging moment of life that we will not, we cannot, we will never recover. That things are desperate and dark and they're only going to get worse. <laughs> I've been there. I bet you have been there too. It just doesn't seem like anything good can come out of it. You so easily forget the promises that Jesus made. We, we so quickly forget the power that's found in his name. We forget that nothing catches God by surprise and that every day from well before we were born has been given a purpose and a life-enriching plan. We forget that God promises that he has a plan for each of us and a plan for good and not for disaster. Plans that are filled with both hope and a future. We forget those things. Three times in the last several days, Jesus has revealed the plan of God to his followers. Moments after Peter had declared with great faith and, and insight that you are the son of the living God, Jesus had said from then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many things at the hands of the elders and, and leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, that he would be killed but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. That's chapter 16. And then chapter 17, after they gathered again in Galilee, Jesus told them, the Son of God, the Son of Man, is going to be betrayed into the hands of the enemies. He will be killed, but on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. And it says that his disciples were filled with great grief. That, that's chapter 17. But then again in chapter 20, as Jesus was going up to, to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside privately and told them what was going to happen. Listen, he said. I've said it before, but listen. We're going to Jerusalem now where the Son of Man will be betrayed to the leading priests and to the teachers of the religious law. They will sentence him to die. And then they will hand him over to the Romans to be mocked, to be flogged with a whip, and to be crucified. But on the third day, he will be raised from the dead. The problem wasn't that the information hadn't been given. The problem was that in the midst of the emotional turmoil and fear that had been a part of these last 72 hours, it, it had made them forget that there was a plan, that the plan was established by God and that no force on earth, no power under the earth was going to derail or destroy that plan. 
And and someone here today needs to hear that there is a plan. Someone here today needs to be reminded, as David was reminded, Oh Lord, you've examined my heart and know everything about me. You know when I sit down and when I stand up. You know my thoughts even when I'm far away. You see when I travel and when I rest at home. You know everything I do. You know what I am going to say even before I say it. You, You go before me. You follow me. You place your hand of blessing on on my head. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too great for me to understand. I can never escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Each moment was laid out before a single day had passed. How precious are your thoughts, O God, towards me. They cannot be numbered. I can't even count them. They outnumber the sands that lie beside the sea. There's a plan in place for you. There's a plan in place for your life. There's an incredible God of both love and power overseeing that plan. There's a victorious Jesus who has fought every battle and has been and is still undefeated. And he speaks to your situation and he says, let not your heart be troubled or afraid. Trust in God. Trust also in me. He says that to you today. He says that right now. Mary reports, they, whoever they may be, they have taken the body and we don't know where they've put it. And the reaction is immediate. They leave the sorrow behind. They leave the embarrassment and the guilt and the shame behind. And Peter and John, they get up and they run with all their might to the scene of the crime. And Peter and the other disciple, verse 3 says, start out for the tomb and they were both running and, and the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first and, and he stooped in and looked and saw the, the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. We're going to see three stages of understanding, three stages of, of realization It's a gradual revelation, a a slow dawning of the truth that comes to both of these men. John, being younger and faster, gets to the tomb first, but he's a little more reserved. He doesn't go in for fear of further desecrating the burial site. He, he, He stands at the door and he puts his head in and he sees the wrappings that had covered the body laying on the stone bed and, and where the head had been. They, he, he sees a bit of a, a linen mess there. But really, he sees one thing and one thing alone. The body's gone. The body's gone. The grave clothes are there, but no body. And, and there's significance in what John sees, but it's disconnected with what he both thinks and feels. And the only thing that is screaming through John's mind and body right at that moment is Jesus is gone. This is a disaster. Who could do this? Why would they do this? You've heard me say this several times throughout this series. We don't walk. We don't depend. We don't rely on what we see or what we hear or what we're told. 
We are a people that believe in God. We are a people that believe that he's at work and that he's doing extraordinary things at all times. We are a people that, that have faith in his ability to turn trials into triumph. That, that he can take failure and, and make it a strength. That, that he has and he will take victims and transform them into being victors. This is the first glance that John has. He, he sees Jesus is missing and his heart is troubled. But now we move to the next stage, stage that's found in, in chapter 20, verse 6 of John. Then Simon Peter arrived and he ran inside. He noticed the linen wrappings laying there while the cloth that covered Jesus' head was folded up and, and laying apart from the other wrappings. Peter's just Peter. He, he doesn't much care about protocol or, or desecrating a, a sacred site. He just runs inside. And, and it says that he noticed the linen wrappings were, were laying there. The original language uses that, a word that indicates deeper understanding. He saw and he began and beheld attentively that things didn't make sense. Things didn't make sense. Yes, Jesus isn't here, but there's some other stuff happening. Why would a grave robber come and unwrap a body from the linen strips that had been put in place, covered in this thick solution that was used to, to cover him, why would they steal the body and then refashion the strips to look as though the body had been removed through the wrapping? Why would they take time to take the napkin that was over his head and fold it neatly and place it where his head had laid? This doesn't make sense. There's, there's something more going on. There's something greater, something bigger. As I've prepared for this service, I've been praying for, for six weeks that as we're going through this incredible story that you would start to see, that you would start to understand with attentiveness that, you're, that what you're facing right now is not all that it seems to be. That, that you would see there's room, that, that there's opportunity for God to do something more. The, the, the facts as they have been presented don't tell the whole or final story. That the test that's in front of you is about to be more than you could see or understand. That's how I've been praying. That's how I've been praying. Peter sees with a growing, attentive understanding. The fingerprints of God are here. Something's going on. I, I don't understand it. But something's going on. Verse 8. Then the disciple who had reached the tomb first, that's John. He also moved from outside to inside the tomb. And he saw, but he moves to this greater revelation, this greater understanding, he saw and he believed. For until then, they still hadn't understood the scriptures that had said Jesus must rise from the dead. They, they had, there had been something that had taken place. They saw 
And now they believed. John comes fully into the tomb and says that he perceived with understanding what was going on. He perceived and he believed. At that moment, all of the parts, all of the information came together with a loud click. The the scriptures they had studied since the time of their youth, the the promises, the statements that Jesus had made over the last many days, the grave clothes still lying where the body had been before the earthquake, it, it all came together and there was an understanding that arrived with them both that hadn't been there just seconds before. One of the verses that these two good Jewish men would have memorized from the Torah as they are studying to to be graduated from being children into adulthood would have come out of Numbers chapter 23. They would know this verse. They would have memorized in their own hearts. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He is not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried through? That's a a memory verse we should all have locked up. Let me repeat, Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man, so he does not lie. He's not human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? The answer, of course, is no, he's never done that. It doesn't matter what the situation looks like now. What has God promised? It's interesting to know and to be aware of what the report is today. But what has God said? What has God spoken about your situation? That's the final. That's the meaningful. That's the authoritative word that we hold on to. Not what we see, not what we hear, but what we've been promised by God. The the followers of Jesus had been on a roller coaster of emotion over this this past week. They'd been traumatized by all sorts of experiences in the last 72 hours. Last Sunday, the crowds had been enthusiastic and they'd been exuberant in their welcome of Jesus. But by the arrest on Thursday night and the trials and In the early morning moments of Friday morning, that same crowd had turned fierce and angry towards Jesus, had demanded that criminals be released from punishment, but that Jesus, who had known no sin, would be put to death and crucified. The mockery, the the hatred, the, the violence at Golgotha was unimaginable. The, the mood had, had changed again when Jesus died and, and people move away from the hill with this deep sorrow. The Roman soldier put it best when, when he said, having witnessed all that's taken place here, I know that this was an innocent man. It had been up and down. It had been a wild, chaotic ride. There is the slime, the The guilt that comes with shame of knowing that we've done wrong, that we've made mistakes, that when we were being counted on, we've fled. We've made a mess of our own history. For the 11 disciples that remain, they realize that despite 
Jesus' kindness and care for them over these last three years, when, when he needed them the very most, they ran. They, they were nowhere to be found. Peter, the one who stood before Jesus and vowed up and down that he would never leave Jesus' side, even if it caused him to lose his own life, and then at the first sign of difficulty denies and distances himself from the connection to Jesus not once but three times in the view and in the hearing of Jesus. Our humanness, our, our inability to marry our circumstances to the promise and the presence of Jesus gets us into all sorts of trouble and turmoil. Our inability to see beyond the facts that are presented and, and grasp the faith to see the plan, the purpose of God in the most difficult of circumstances can and does get us into some real jams almost every day. I feel like the last two years have been traumatic and difficult for people of faith. The, the isolation that has cut us off from from the joy, from the strength that comes from gathering together. We, we didn't understand until this time how much it means to walk through those doors and find a, a warm smile to greet you. And you may not be the huggy type, but after these last two years, isn't it good to walk through the doors and just be embraced by family of faith? It's, it's, it's an amazing thing. Yet, we've been isolated. And, and the, writers to the, Hebrew, the writer to the Hebrews says it's so important that you not stop gathering together, especially as we get closer and closer to his return. This becomes more and more important. Over the last two years, we've been bombarded with messages and warnings and reports that I believe have taken their toll on us. Reports that say this is bad, but it's going to get worse. This is our new reality. Get used to it. Constant reminders that we have no control over what's happening, what's going to occur. We, we, we are just victims. And all of that has caused us to become fear-filled about our circumstances. All of this has caused us to, to focus on what is said, what is happening, what is reported, and not grabbing hold of the promises of God, not sitting in the calming presence of God and allowing Him to reveal Himself in a brand new way so that we're freed from our fears and the anxiety and the experience that, that peace that the world can't give, but only Jesus can. Not, not waiting until God comes to our emotions and speaks the words, let not your hearts, your emotions be troubled, neither allow yourselves to be ruled by fear. We can so easily be stuck at the entrance of our hope. We can easily peer through the door and still see what's wrong and not what's up. Still worried that this isn't going to work out. 
But this morning, I'm standing here, and I'm calling us to move forward. I'm, I'm calling you to rush into the place that you're afraid of. I, I'm calling you to start to see more, to understand more, to behold attentively that there is much more than tragedy and, and trauma on the horizon. To, to understand in a spiritually intuitive way that God is up to something. We may not be able to express it. We may not be able to explain it. But there is this knowing at the back of our minds that we're not alone. We're not abandoned. He is there and he's doing something. When, when that takes place, when we dare to believe more than, than our shouting fears and our screaming anxiety, when we dare to believe that God is up to something, it's at that moment that the significance of who God is and the power of what God is capable of doing, the, the impact of what he has promised he will do hits us in such a way that we start to believe that this isn't a tragedy. This is a testimony. That we are on our way to triumph. That when we perceive that God is involved, then we can believe that the end is not in sight, but victory is coming our way. Friday, the facts didn't really line up. Friday, Jesus was dead. Friday, the enemy appeared to have won the spiritual battle. Sunday, death is swallowed up in victory. Death has been conquered. Jesus is alive. Friday, P Peter has failed miserably. He, he, he has lost his courage and given in to his weakness and has denied Christ Three times. At the moment of his last denial, at the moment, that particular moment, the Lord turns and he looks Peter in the eye. And suddenly the prophecy flashed through his mind just as he remembers before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. The, the, the shame, the guilt, the embarrassment, that was Friday. There was a, a silent Saturday. That, that awkward, uncomfortable, horrible moment when God doesn't speak. Nothing is happening. Our, our, our doubts, our fears seem to be able to, to find a voice. But God doesn't seem to be saying anything. Nothing of hope, nothing of promise is on the horizon. We don't think that we'll be able to make it till Sunday. That's, that's that silent, uncomfortable Saturday that many of you are in right now. But now it's Sunday. Peter and John perceive the, the significance that's all before them. And, and suddenly the fear evaporates. Suddenly they believe that, that Jesus is alive. What was lost, what had been stolen, what had been destroyed through the trauma and the events that took place on Friday are all about to be restored now on resurrection morning. Thomas and his deep doubts are about to be removed permanently and perfectly at the appearance of Jesus. Can I have the worship team come, please? Mary is going to go to the garden weeping through her grief, through her loss, and it's, it's all going to disappear when the one she thinks is the keeper of the garden calls her by name. 
Having been stuck for two long years in a worldwide difficulty that has stopped and halted trade and commerce and has been more reported than any other event in recent history, having been teased and enticed to go to one of two polar opposites, to disagree and divorce family and friends for the belief that they hold because they're different from yours. It's understandable that our confidence has been shaken, our skepticism has grown, and our fears have grown louder and bolder. But I invite you this morning to come to the empty tomb. I invite you to look at the linens and see that the body's not there. I I ask you to investigate the scriptures and see that he had promised he would be raised from the dead. I encourage you to look with attentiveness and, and recognize that the fingerprints of God are on your life, are on your situation, are on your circumstances. I, I beg of you to allow yourself to perceive the significance of God at work in you, around you, and through you, and that you believe that God is not done with you or your circumstance. He's, he's only just beginning. I, I want you both to believe or to perceive the power, the presence, the promise of Jesus. I want you to perceive and believe that he's at work, that he hasn't abandoned you. He hasn't left you. I feel like the word that I have for you this morning after two years of interruption and chaotic confusion is the same word that that Joseph had for his brothers in Egypt long ago. The brothers had just laid their father to rest and had come back home. And now that Jacob was gone, they were kind of concerned that Joseph would use that opportunity to repay them for the terrible betrayal that they had brought upon his life when Joseph was in his teen years. And so they go to Joseph and they beg for mercy and they beg that he would honor his father's memory and not punish them as they deserve to be punished. Please have have mercy on us. And and, and this is the word that I feel God's put on my heart for you this morning. Joseph looks at his brothers and he says, listen, what you did to me, what you meant to do to me, you meant to hurt me. You meant to kill me. You meant to take me off the scene. But God turned your evil into good to save the lives of many people, which is being done right now. So don't be afraid. I will take care of you. I will take care of your children, of the the next generation. I, I, I feel a release today to say that all that has happened and all that is happening right now might seem like tragedy, might seem like trouble, but we are rushing up on an amazing triumph in our lives. What was meant to shake your faith, what was meant to cause you to live in the depressing depth of doubt is about to be turned by God into good. People and stories are about to be restored and you're about to see, you're about to experience the amazing, redemptive power of Jesus. God says to you as an individual and to us as a people, 
Do not be afraid. I will take care of you and of the next generation. I want you to get ready. I want you to get ready to believe. In just a moment, I'm going to invite you to come to this altar and we're going to pray together. In fact, I'd like you to stand right now. When I say go, if this affects you, if this touches your life, then I want you to come and join me because we're going to pray together. We're going to ask God to insert a twist into your story. That it goes from what we've been told and what we've experienced into a God-blessed, God-orchestrated moment. That, that happens so often in Scripture. I was lost, but God twisted that, and now I'm found. I was really blind, but then God came, and now I see. I, I was sad and lost in grief. I even wore the clothes of grief. But then God came, and my wardrobe changed, and now I'm wearing party clothes. So if you fit into one or more of these situations, when I say go, you come, and we're going to pray together. If you're here this morning and, and you're filled with anxiety and sense that life is out of control and that it will never make sense or ever come into any kind of order again, I want you to come when I say go. If you're discouraged because after a long train of bad news has arrived, you don't believe that anything good will ever show up for you, then I want you to come. If, if you live in a no man's land and division has come to your world and to your family and you're walking in that dangerous, difficult, in-between land, between polar opposites, I want you to come because we're going to pray. If you're in pain, if you're in stress because of physical illness and ailment, then I want you to come. If your family is falling apart, I want you to come. If your finances leave you with red ink at the end of the month, then I want you to come. If your history has shown up in a way that's going to disrupt your future, I want you to come. If you feel the torment and the terror of fear, I, then I want you to come. If you can't rest because of wars and rumors of wars that are on the news all the time, then I want you to come. If you've had some faith-shaking difficulties show up that have left you unsettled, then I want you to come. If you've never had a rich and rewarding relationship with Jesus, then I want you to come. If something has stolen the joy, the excitement of faith that you once knew and you don't know what it is, then I want you to come. If you're in pain of any kind, then I want you to come. If you're in trouble of any kind, then I want you to come. And I want you to come now. I want you to step out from where you are, and I want you to come quickly. I believe many of you are there. We've been praying for this time. We've been believing for this time. We've asked God to show up, and we're believing that he's going to. I need you to squeeze right in as tight as you can, because there's many folks that are going to come. The word cancer has been spoken over people, and I'm believing that God's going to do amazing things beyond anything that we could ask or think. There are children in this room that have been tormented at night, and we're going to ask God to come. There are marriages that are in difficulty. There's life situations that we hadn't planned on that have shown up. I want you to come. We're just going to wait for a moment, but I need you to come because we're going to pray together. There, there is benefit by coming together. Jesus says this, 
It doesn't matter about the numbers. It only takes two or three. But when they come together in my name, I show up. And I'm going to do some amazing things. Prayer people, I need you to come and step around and just make sure that everybody has a hand laid on their life. I need some folks over here on the far side. Jesus is going to show up right here, right now. You may not see the whole explosion of things that need to happen, but I I want you to perceive and believe that it's on its way. It's on its way. Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you for this moment, for this wonderful God-ordained moment where we as the family of God can gather around this place, the place of prayer. And we can stand here and we can say, God, I'm broken, I'm, I'm in pain, I'm in need. I, I have family that are, are struggling. There's cancer in my family. There's, there's weakness in my body. There's fear that torments my sleep. There's anxiety that, that keeps me on edge all day long. And God, I need your help. I need your strength. I need you to reveal yourself in a brand new way. And so, Father, I start out today by saying, peace, be still. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your lives be ruled and reigned over by fear. God, the God of peace, has come to your circumstance. God, the God of peace, has a plan, has a purpose for your life. He's not abandoned you. He's not forgotten you. He's not set you on the shelf. Sometimes it's easier to believe a lie than it is to be believe the truth. Let not your hearts be troubled. Let not your lives be ruled by fear. Now, Father, I'm praying that you would open the eyes of their understanding, that you would open up their eyes to see the fingerprints of God on their past, on their present, and on their future. God, your promise is is that you will lead us from victory to victory, from glory to glory. Your promise is, is that you will restore and give us a future and a promise. You will give us hope and life and strength and courage. That God, you will give us wisdom and strategy. That you will anoint our heads so that our hands are strong for battle. And that we will not, we will run and we will not faint. God, because our dependence isn't on us, our dependence is completely on you. And so, Father, I pray that understandings would be open today and that they would be able to see the fingerprints of God on their lives. Father, there are folks who have been traumatized over these last number of months. There's been loss. There's been disappointment. There's been discouragement. And so, Father, I'm praying right now in the name of Jesus that that would lift off right now, right here. That, Father, hope would come rushing in through each and every life, through each and every home, through each and every circumstance that's represented here today. God, you have not failed. You will not fail. You cannot fail. Remind them of that. Help them see that the grave isn't empty because someone's stolen the body. Help them see the promises that have been made and the reality of what's happened. Help them to perceive and to believe. And now, Father, I'm praying the peace of God on their minds. 
The enemy has come in like a thief and has stolen peace, has stolen calm, has stolen confidence. There's been questions. There's been controversy. Where are you now, God? But God, you've never left them, not for one moment. Not for one moment. Help them feel that. Help them sense the everlasting, ever-loving arms wrapped around them. Help them feel the closeness of your presence by your breath on their necks, necks and the, the whispering of your, their names as you hold them close and tight. Father, today I come against disease. I come against sickness. I come against illness. Father, even in our own church family, there are a number of people who couldn't be here today because of illness. And I'm praying and declaring that your name is healer. That, Father, there is no disease that you cannot and will not heal. There is no weakness that you cannot support and and strengthen. Let it happen right now. Let it happen right now. Just stand where you are and, and, and thank the Lord. And as you're thanking the Lord,